With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm trying to free your mind, Neo. But I can only show you the door. You're the one that has to walk through it. Welcome everyone to the Origins Podcast, I'm your host Paul. This is episode 121 and this episode's entitled Moving Sidewalks Before the Jetsons. Our first story this week comes from the National Geographic and it's entitled Eight Moon Landing Hoax Myths Busted. This one has a series of eight photographs associated with it but the article stands alone without the photos. But if you want to get the most from it visit the show notes at www.origins.info click on the link to this article in episode 121 of the Origins podcast the photos are quite clear and it does fill in the information a little bit more. Forty years after US astronaut Neil Armstrong became the first human to set foot on the moon, many conspiracy theorists still insist the Apollo 11 moon landing was an elaborate hoax. Examine the photographic evidence and find out why experts say some of the most common claims simply don't hold water. The first photograph is entitled Flags Wave and it shows one of the astronauts standing next to the American flag. You can tell Apollo was faked because The American flag appears to be flapping as if in a breeze in videos and photographs supposedly taken from the airless lunar surface. The fact of the matter is The video you see where the flag's moving is because the astronaut just placed it there and the inertia from when they let go kept it moving said spaceflight historian Roger Launius of the Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. The astronauts also accidentally bent the horizontal rods holding the flag in place several times, creating the appearance of a rippling flag in photographs. Photo number two is entitled, No Photographers. Neil Armstrong and the Eagle Lunar Lander are reflected in Buzz Aldrin's visor in one of the most famous images taken during the July 1969 moon landing. 
You can tell Apollo was faked because... Only two astronauts walked on the moon at a time. Yet in photographs such as this one, where both are visible, there is no sign of a camera. So who took the picture? The fact of the matter is, the cameras were mounted to the astronauts' chests, said astronomer Phil Plate, author of the award-winning blog Bad Astronomy and president of the James Randi Educational Foundation. In the picture above, Plate notes, you can see Neil's arms are sort of at his chest. That's where the camera is. He wasn't holding it up to his visor. Photograph number three. No stars visible. My God, it's full of stars, Arthur C. Clarke's 2001 character Dave Bowman famously exclaimed when faced with the vastness of space. You can tell Apollo was faked because the astronauts made no such exclamation while on the moon and the black backgrounds of their photographs are curiously devoid of stars. The fact of the matter is, the moon's surface reflects sunlight and that glare would have made stars difficult to see. Also, the astronauts photographed their lunar adventures using fast exposure settings which would have limited incoming background light. They were taking pictures at 1 150th of a second or 1 250th of a second, Bad Astronomy's plate said. In that amount of time, stars just don't show up. Photograph number four. No landing crater. The lunar lander known as the Eagle rests peacefully on the Moon's surface in a picture taken mere hours after the 20th of July 1969 moon landing. You can tell Apollo was faked because the module is shown sitting on relatively flat, undisturbed soil. According to skeptics, the lander's descent should have been accompanied by a large dust cloud and would have formed a noticeable crater. The fact of the matter is, the lander's engines were throttled back just before landing and it did not hover long enough to form a crater or kick up much dust, the Smithsonian's Launius said. Science fiction movies depict this big jet of fire coming out as spacecraft land, but that's not how they did it on the moon, he added. That's not the way they would do it now or any time in the future. Photograph number five. Lighting varies. A moon landing picture shows Buzz Aldrin standing on the footpad of the eagle's ladder, his bent knees suggesting that he's about to jump up to the next rung. You can tell Apollo was faked because... Aldrin is seen in the shadow of the lander, yet he is clearly visible. Hoax subscribers say that many shadows look strange in Apollo pictures. Some shadows don't appear to be parallel with each other, and some objects in shadow appear well lit, hinting that light was coming from multiple sources, suspiciously like studio cameras. The fact of the matter is, there were multiple light sources, Launius said. You've got the sun, the Earth's reflected light, light reflecting off the lunar module, the spacesuits, and also the lunar surface. It's also important to note that the lunar surface is not flat, he added. If an object is in a dip, 
you're going to get a different shadow compared to an object next to it that is on a level surface. Photograph number 6. Footprints too clear. The contrasted lines of a boot print appear as Buzz Aldrin lifts his foot to record an image for studying the moon's soil properties. Apollo pictures show scores of clear boot prints left behind as the astronauts traipsed across the moon. You can tell Apollo was faked because the astronauts' prints are a bit too clear for being made on a bone-dry world. Prints that well-defined could only have been made in wet sand. The fact of the matter is, that's nonsense, said Bad Astronomy's plate. Moon dust or regolith is like a finely ground powder. When you look at it under a microscope, it almost looks like volcanic ash. So when you step on it, it can compress very easily into the shape of a boot, and those shapes could stay pristine for a long time thanks to the airless vacuum on the moon. Photograph number seven, no leftovers. When Armstrong and Aldrin took off from the moon in July 1969, they left behind part of the eagle, the US flag, and several other instruments and mementos, including the seismometer Aldrin is adjusting in the picture above. You can tell Apollo was faked because, with instruments such as the Hubble Space Telescope, capable of peering into the distant recesses of the universe, surely scientists should be able to see the various objects still on the moon. But no such pictures of these objects exist. The fact of the matter is, no telescope on Earth or in space has that kind of resolving power. You can calculate this, Plate says. Even with the biggest telescope on Earth, the smallest thing you can see on the surface of the Moon is something bigger than a house. And finally, photo number eight, strange lights. Strange patterns of light partially obscure the upper left part of a picture of Buzz Aldrin setting up a foil sheet for collecting solar particles near the eagle. You can tell Apollo was faked because those mysterious reflections come from studio lights on a production set. The fact of the matter is, it's highly unlikely NASA would make such an obvious blunder if they had spent millions of dollars to fake the moon landing, Plate said. Okay, let's take a step back. NASA's going to release a picture showing studio lights? Hello. The odd lights in the picture are simply lens flares, he said. There's a big fat pentagonal one right in the middle. That is from the aperture of the camera itself. And if you're not sure whether the conspiracy theories are true or not, visit the show notes, have a look at the photos, look at the descriptions, make up your mind. But to me, they're highly plausible. Maybe the conspiracy theorists got it wrong after all.
next time I visit the fish and chip shop and I order some calamari and french fries, I'm going to look at my calamari in a slightly different light after reading this article. From the International Weekly Journal of Science, Nature, an article by Jessica Marshall. Squid can fly to save energy. Squid can save energy by flying rather than swimming, according to calculations based on high-speed photography. Squid of many species have been seen to fly using the same jet propulsion mechanisms that they use to swim, squirting water out of their mantles so that they rocket out of the sea and glide through the air. Until now, most researchers have thought that such flight was a way to avoid predators. But Ronald Adore, a marine biologist at Dalhousie University in Halifax, Canada, has calculated that propelling themselves through the air may actually be an efficient way for squid to travel long distances. The creatures are rarely seen flying, so some researchers argue that the mode of travel is not widespread in migration. But over years of study, Adore has gathered hints that the behaviour is more common than was thought. Since the 1970s, he has been keeping northern shortfin squid in a 15-metre indoor pool. At first, his research team would often find dead squid around the pool in the morning, the creatures having jumped out of the water overnight. It was clear that if two or three died every night, we were going to run out of animals fairly quickly, says Adore. The team ultimately lowered the water level to keep the squid in. Further evidence came from Julia Stewart, a marine biologist at Hopkins Marine Station of Stanford University in Pacific Grove, California, who uses tagging to track Humboldt squid. Her recent work found that they travelled faster than anyone had seen before. The question this raised in my mind was, maybe they really are flying, says Adore. In research that Stewart will present today at the American Geophysical Union's Ocean Sciences Meeting in Salt Lake City, Utah, Odor, Stewart and others studied a set of photographs taken by amateur photographer Bob Hulse in 2009 off the coast of Brazil. Hulse shot rapid succession pictures of what the researchers believe were orange-backed squid, a small cephalopod with a body length, excluding arms and tentacles, of about six centimetres, leaping out of the water. Because they knew the intervals of time between each photo, Adore and his colleagues were able to estimate the squid's velocity and acceleration and compare them with these values for squid in water. They found that the velocity in air while the squid were propelling themselves with the water jet was five times faster than any measurements Adore had made for comparable squid species in water. It makes perfect sense that these species are using flight as a way of saving energy, says Adore. Some species spend vast amounts of energy migrating each year. For example, the northern shortfin travels more than a thousand kilometres down the North American coast to spawn. I could never explain how they could get this much energy, even given evidence that females eat the males as they make the journey, says Adore. As soon as we thought about the possibility that these things flew, it became plausible that these animals actually use flight as a way of reducing energy cost. But Richard Young, a retired oceanographer at the University of Hawaii in Honolulu, who sent the photos to Adore, 
and who collected a specimen of a closely related species that a Dawes team used to estimate the size of the orangeback squid, thinks it's more probable that the squids fly to avoid predators. If it were a likely possibility, you'd see squid popping out of the water and popping out of the water again. It's very rare to see them fly at all. As far as I know, nobody has ever seen them doing it in a sequence, he says. Yet Young agrees that the findings are surprising and exciting. It's the first time we've ever had any information comparing flight in air with flight in water. Odor proposes to estimate what portion of time squid spend above water by fitting the creatures with tags that measure acceleration. From there, his team could move on to investigate the gliding part of the squid's flight, not just the rocketing, he says. Some companies are known for their legendary job interview questions. Brain teasers, trivia questions, moral thought problems. In the 1920s, Thomas Edison was famous himself for the interview exams he administered to eager job applicants. But could you have passed Edison's test? From the io9.com website, could you have passed Thomas Edison's job interview test? Disappointed by the lack of knowledge among his prospective employees, Edison would hand job seekers a 150-question exam before he would consider them for employment. The exams would be tailored to the applicant's history. I gather that cabinet makers needed to know about the life of Jesus because Jesus was a carpenter. But the emphasis was definitely on factual knowledge. Despite requests from the press... Edison wouldn't release lists of his test questions, saying any such lists came straight from the often disgruntled test takers. Apparently, Edison kicked off a trend. Soon other companies were requiring similar entrance exams. So the next time an interviewer springs a pop quiz question on you, you may be able to blame Edison. The Mental Floss website has assembled some of the famed Edison test questions. He considered 90% a passing score, and only 35 of the 500 applicants who took the test ever passed. Try your hand at this abbreviated Edison exam. Who was Francis Marion? Where is the River Volga? Who invented logarithms? What is the first line in the Aeneid? What war material did Chile export to the Allies during the war? Who was the Roman Emperor when Jesus Christ was born? Where is the Sargasso Sea? Of what is brass made? Who was Leonidas? Who discovered the X-ray? Where do we get 
shellac. Why is cast iron called pig iron? And finally, who was Bessemer and what did he do? Now, if you don't know the answers, or you would just simply like to find out, go to the show notes, click on the link to episode 121, the link to this article, and just underneath the list of questions is a link to a website, the Mental Floss website, that has the answers. And there's a little note here. Remember, Google is cheating. A plant that last flowered when woolly mammoths roamed the plains is back in bloom. Biologists have resurrected a 30,000-year-old plant, cultivating it from fruit tissue recovered from frozen sediment in Siberia. The plant is by far the oldest to be brought back from the dead. The previous record holder was a sacred lotus dating back 1,200 years. From the www.newscientist.com, an article by Kate Revillius. A plant blooms after 30,000 years in permafrost. The late David Gilichinsky from the Soil Cryology Laboratory in Moscow, Russia and colleagues recovered the fruits of the Ice Age flowering plant, Silenes delophylla, from a fossilised squirrel burrow in frozen sediments near the Kolyma River in northeast Siberia. Radiocarbon dating of the fruit suggests the squirrels stashed it around 31,800 years ago, just before the ice rolled in. By applying growth hormones to the fruit tissue, Gilichinsky and his colleagues managed to kick-start cell division and ultimately produce a viable flowering plant. Modern-day Estenophyla looks similar to the resurrected plant, but has larger seeds and fewer buds. Modern plants also grow roots more rapidly. Studying these and other differences will reveal how the plant has evolved since the last ice age. Alan Cooper, director of the Australian Centre for Ancient DNA at the University of Adelaide, is impressed but cautious because some supposedly ancient plants grown from permafrost have turned out to be more modern contaminants. To rule out this possibility, Gilichinsky's team went to some lengths to verify that the fruit came from undisturbed deposits, they say. It's an exciting result and tells us we shouldn't just look for seeds when trying to generate ancient material, says Stephen Penfield, a plant scientist at the University of Exeter in the UK. Similar fossilised burrows have been identified in Alaska and Canada, If permafrost continues to melt, I would think it likely that a small fraction of ancient seeds will germinate, 
survive and grow spontaneously, says Buford Price from the University of California in Berkeley. And from the news.yahoo.com website, an article by Andrea Mustaine. Strangely moving Antarctic lakes surprise researchers. Researchers recently uncovered a startling phenomenon. A set of teardrop-shaped lakes in Antarctica that mysteriously move, jogging along at a pace as fast as five feet or one and a half metres per day. The lakes sit atop the George VI ice shelf, a massive floating plain of ice larger than Vermont, composed of the mingled fronts of glaciers that flow off the edge of the continent and rest on the ocean. Glaciologist Doug McHale at the University of Chicago and student researcher C.H. La Barbera noticed the travelling bodies of water while studying satellite images of 11 ice shelf lakes captured between 2001 and 2010. We compiled 10 images for the last 10 years and literally made a movie, McHale told Our Amazing Planet. As we looked at the loop, the lakes moved up the coast. The discovery was something of a shock, he said. We walked into our research with an expectation that has been completely defied by what we observed. McHale said he had expected the lakes to move over time, but only because the ice shelf underneath them also moves as ice flows from the interior of the continent out to sea. Instead, we found a subset of lakes that defied this in a spectacularly curious and interesting way, by moving parallel to a coastline of the King George VI ice shelf, McHale said. It turns out the mechanism at work is something that nearly everyone would recognise from TV or the breakfast table. That gooey back-and-forth folding action often shown in ads for chocolate or maple syrup and known in scientific parlance as viscous buckling. But in this case, the maple or chocolate syrup is the ice shelf itself and it's pouring horizontally and smashing into and oozing around nearby Alexander Island, enfolding the large island in an icy embrace. As the ice scrunches around the island, it propels the lakes along. It's a geographical arrangement that makes the George VI an oddity amongst its ice shelf neighbours, which typically flow unimpeded out into the ocean. In recent years, these floating ice plateaus have become the subject of a flurry of research because of their apparent link to climate change and rising seas. Scientists have discovered that ice shelves function as massive doorstops for glaciers. When ice shelves weaken or collapse, they allow glaciers to slide into the ocean more quickly, which in turn raises global sea levels. In the last decade, increasingly sharp-eyed satellites have captured several catastrophic ice shelf collapses in grim detail. Nearly all of these collapses have occurred along the Antarctic Peninsula, home to the George VI ice shelf and one of the most swiftly warming places on the planet. Changes in wind patterns have raised temperatures on the peninsula by 4 or 4.5 degrees Fahrenheit in the last 50 years, and the warming trend appears to be striding ever southward, consuming more and more of the region. And although the George VI ice shelf isn't in imminent danger, 
It's kind of next in line, if you like, said Tom Holt, a glaciology lecturer at the Aberystwyth University in Wales who studies the George VI ice shelf. Holt said the data show the ice shelf is thinning and fracturing, somewhat along its southern front. But according to McHale, it appears that the ice shelf's cosy relationship with Alexander Island is keeping it healthier than some of its neighbours, insulating it from the more extreme effects of climate change. The island likely acts as a buffer against warming ocean water and also acts as a sawhorse, propping up the edge of the ice shelf. And because its lakes are the result of strange weather patterns created by mountains on Alexander Island, instead of global warming, the ice shelf gives scientists a natural petri dish to study how ice shelf lakes alter the structure of ice shelves in general. We're interested in surface lakes on ice shelves because they're the precursor of ice shelf collapse, McHale said. This ice shelf gives us long-standing lakes for reasons other than climate change and with consequences that aren't going to kill the beast we're studying. So we can look at these lakes to see what's going on. Yet even with its island protector, it could be that the George VI ice shelf won't be entirely immune to the effects of warming. It's in that region where we're expecting to see changes over the next 10 or 20 years, Holt said. In the meantime, McHale said, the ice shelf could offer clues to the physics behind the plight of more vulnerable ice shelves. We expect that to be a harder problem, he said. But we'll get closer to the real ultimate goal, which is to understand why lakes and ice shelf instability are correlated. The recovery of a mysterious wooden pole at the bottom of Lake Huron is fueling excitement among US and Canadian researchers that they have found more evidence of a lost world of North American caribou hunters from nearly 10,000 years ago. From the VancouverSun.com website, an article by Randy Boswell. Divers find a clue to ancient civilization. Artifact at Lake Huron's bottom, believe used by hunters 10,000 years ago. The scientists believe these prehistoric people, who would have been among the earliest inhabitants of the continent, had a kill site along a ridge along the present-day US-Canada border that was eventually submerged by rising waters when the glaciers melted at the end of the last ice age. Now drowned under about 35 metres of water in Lake Huron, the Alpena Amberley Ridge is named for the Michigan and Ontario towns that respectively mark the western and eastern ends of the 160 kilometre long, 16 kilometre wide feature. The theory that the ridge was an ancient hunting ground was first announced in 2009 after the discovery of lake bottom rock features that appear to have been arranged by human hands to herd migrating caribou into narrow corridors, ideal for spear hunting. These types of drive lanes are still used by some Inuit hunters in northern Canada to funnel caribou and make hunting them easier. 
Other groups of boulders mapped by the Lake Huron researchers are thought to have been blinds, meant to conceal hunters before they sprang out to attack passing caribou. The two-metre-long piece of wood found amid such a rock assemblage during a summer search of Euron's floor for traces of human activity was later dated to 8,900 years ago, the researchers revealed last month. The first thing you notice is that it appears to have been shaped with a rounded base and a pointed tip, University of Michigan anthropologist John O'Shea stated in a summary of the team's research. There's also a bevel on one side that looks unnatural, like it had to have been created. It looks like it might have been used as a tent pole or a pole to hang meat. O'Shea's principal research partner, University of Michigan marine engineer Guy Meadows, told Post Media News last March that the Lake Huron rock formations constituted promising but not definitive evidence of an ancient human presence and that the team was keen to gather more compelling proof. We really want to produce an artefact and not just these rock structures that look very promising, he said at the time. But the area is obviously enormous. It's a proverbial needle in a haystack problem. The large wooden needle found last summer is still undergoing tests to determine precisely how it might have been modified by prehistoric hunters. Meanwhile, other material gathered from the bottom of the lake is being analysed by experts, including Canadian researcher Lisa Sonnenberg, a McMaster University paleoecologist who specialises in studying microdebitage, stone flakes left at archaeological sites by ancient toolmakers. Meadows and O'Shea have teamed with Wayne State University computer scientist Robert Reynolds to create a three-dimensional virtual model of the ridge, including animated caribou moving along the corridor to help identify as many high-probability targets as possible for the lake-bottom searches for artefacts. Based on geological data that give a general picture of the topography along the ridge about 10,000 years ago, The simulation is meant to allow the experts to step into that world and visualise the paths caribou would likely have taken during their mass migrations, Reynolds said last year. The simulation, he said at the time, was designed to help researchers plot the places where ancient hunters would have established staging grounds and position themselves around kill sites to maximise their harvesting chances. During this past summer's fieldwork, deposits of pine pollen and charcoal were identified and sampled at the site where the pole was discovered. Slowly, the environmental picture is filling in, O'Shea stated in the research summary. There was a marsh close by this site. It seems we're narrowing in on people, but of course forest fires could have created the charcoal as well as cooking fires. So we need to await for the analyses to be sure about what we've got here. I recently heard someone assert that the 1962-63 TV cartoon show, The Jetsons, 
invented the concept of the moving sidewalk. While the Jetsons family certainly did a great deal to plant the idea of the moving walkway into the public consciousness, the concept is much older than 1962. From the blogs.smithsonianmag.com website Moving Sidewalks Before the Jetsons After listening to this article, it might be a good idea to visit the show notes and click on the link to this article because there are a number of coloured plates and black and white plates of moving sidewalk ideas from the past and some of them are really quite intriguing. Today, moving sidewalks are largely relegated to airports and amusement parks but there were big plans for the technology in the 19th and 20th centuries. In 1871, inventor Alfred Speer patented a system of moving sidewalks that he thought would revolutionise pedestrian travel in New York City. Sometimes called the movable pavement, his system would transport pedestrians along a series of three belts running parallel to each other, each successively faster than the next. When Mr. Speer explained his vision to Frank Leslie's Weekly in 1874, it even included a few enclosed parlour cars every 100 feet or so, some cars with drawing rooms for ladies and others for men to smoke in. An 1890 issue of Scientific American explained Speer's system. These belts were to be made up of a series of small platform railway cars strung together. The first line of belts was to run at a slow velocity, say three miles per hour. And upon this slow belt of moving pavement, passengers were expected to step without difficulty. The adjoining belt was intended to have a velocity of six miles per hour, but its speed, in reference to the first belt, would be only three miles per hour. Each separate line of belt was thus to have a different speed from the adjacent one, and thus the passenger might, by stepping from one platform to another, increase or diminish his rate of transit at will. Seats were to be placed at convenient points on the travelling platforms. Though a very forward-thinking French engineer by the name of Eugène Hénard submitted plans to include a moving platform system for the 1889 Paris Fair, those plans fell through and the first electric moving sidewalk was built for the 1893 Columbian Exposition in Chicago. The moving sidewalk featured benches for passengers and cost a nickel, but was undependable and prone to breaking down. As the Western electrician noted in the lead-up to the exposition, there was a contract for 4,500 feet of movable sidewalk designed primarily to carry those passengers arriving by steamboat. When it was operating, people could get off the steamboats and travel on the moving sidewalk 2,500 feet down the pier, delivered to the shore and the exposition entrance. The 1900 Paris Exposition had its own moving walkway, which was quite impressive. Thomas Edison sent one of his producers, James Henry White, to the exposition, and Mr White shot at least 16 movies while at the exposition. He had brought along a new panning head tripod that gave his films a newfound sense of freedom and flow. 
Watching the film, you can see children jumping into frame and even a man doffing his cap to the camera. Possibly aware that he was being captured by an exciting new technology, while a fun novelty of the future chugs along under his feet. The New York Observer reported on the 1900 Paris expedition in a series of letters from a man who simply went by the name Augustus. The October 18, 1900 issue of the newspaper included this correspondence describing the new mode of travel. From this part of the fair it is possible to proceed to a distant exhibition which is placed in what is called the Champ de Mars, without going out of the gates, by means of a travelling sidewalk or train of electric cars. Thousands avail themselves of these means of transportation. The former is a novelty. It consists of three elevated platforms, the first being stationary, the second moving at a moderate rate of speed, and the third at the rate of about six miles an hour. The moving sidewalks have upright posts with knobbed tops by which one can steady himself in passing to or from the platforms. There are occasional seats on these platforms and the circuit of the exposition can be made with rapidity and ease by this contrivance. It also affords a good deal of fun for most of the visitors are unfamiliar with this mode of transport and are awkward in its use. The platform runs constantly in one direction and the electric cars in the opposite. The moving sidewalk again came into vogue in the 1920s when the city of the future was imagined as something sleek and automated. The February 8, 1925 issue of the Texas newspaper, the San Antonio Light, featured predictions about the year 1975 from the great prognosticator Hugo Gernsback. The article included a prediction for the moving sidewalk of 50 years hence. Below the elevated railway, we have continuous moving platforms. There will be three such moving platforms alongside of each other. The first platform will move only a few miles per hour, the second at 8 or 10 miles per hour, and the third at 12 or 15 miles per hour. You step upon the slowest moving one from terra firma and move to the faster ones and take your seat. Then arriving at your station, you can either take the lift to the top platform or else you can get off upon the elevated level and take the fast train there, which stops only every 30 or 40 blocks. Or, if you do not wish this, you can descend by the same elevator down to the local subway. The 1930s and 40s largely saw the world much more preoccupied with the Great Depression and World War II, respectively. But post-war American companies really pushed the idea of moving sidewalks into high gear. Goodyear was at the front of that effort and in the early 1950s drew up different plans for the use of moving sidewalks in stadium parking lots and a radically reimagined New York subway system. The May 1951 issue of Popular Science explained to readers that the moving sidewalk was like an escalator running flat. That article used the same Goodyear publicity illustrations that were later used in the 1956 book 1999, Our Hopeful Future by Victor Cohn. Cohn describes Goodyear's vision of a pedestrian-friendly moving sidewalk system. For example, 
Why not conveyor belts, huge moving sidewalks, to zip pedestrians along from place to place? Such conveyor belt speedwalks, not supersonic but steady moving in contrast to buses or taxicabs, may be just the device to come to our rescue. Today, Goodyear makes the moving sidewalks you can find at the Disney theme parks. These moving sidewalks will be familiar to anyone who has been on Space Mountain at the Magic Kingdom in Walt Disney World or a great number of dark rides at Disneyland, where they allow people to get on and off rides with ease. This practical use of a moving sidewalk in a theme park is not unlike the picture above of Goodyear's New York subway system of the future. Goodyear's moving sidewalks were also featured in the June 7, 1959 edition of Arthur Radabaugh's Sunday comic, Closer Than We Think. The comic explains that the moving sidewalk, which Goodyear imagined would be used to transport sports fans from a stadium to the parking lot, was indeed built at the Houston Coliseum. The large malls planned for tomorrow's metropolitan centres will not be tied up with vehicular traffic. Shoppers and sightseers will be transported by mobile sidewalks that closely resemble giant conveyor belts. Parcels to be delivered will be carried by overhead rail to trucks on the area's perimeter. Passenger carrying belts are already in use. Goodyear has built one connecting nearby railway terminals in Jersey City. Another has been set up by Goodrich and it runs from the entrance of the Houston Coliseum to the parking lot. One of the longest such devices is the two-mile installation at the site of Trinity Dam in California. It was designed to facilitate the movement of material during the construction of the dam. Well, that about takes us to 1962. And as you can see, the Jetsons had almost 100 years of futuristic moving sidewalks to draw from. And that article was posted by Matt Novak. At this point in the show, episode 121, I'd just like to say a big thank you to those people who have helped with the running of the show by making a contribution to the podcast. Whether it be via a straight donation or by buying some of my photographic work through the Fine Art America website. So a big thank you to Raina Inwriter, hope I said that correctly Raina, Kevin Christian, a big thank you to Stephen Edwards who bought some of my cards, William E. Bliss and Adam Chapman. Also a big thank you to Linda Parcell and to Bjorn Thor Bjornsson. Great middle name there, Bjorn. Hope I said your name correctly. I think I did. And Jim Ellis. I nearly forgot Jim last time. Thank you, Jim. If you've visited the show notes at www.origins.info recently, you may notice a new link on the front page. It's a link to my handmade greeting card website. I have been hand-making greeting cards for some time, but it's taken me quite a while to put a website together. Some of my photographs, as you know, are on the Fine Art America's website, but these are cards that I actually make myself. So if you are interested in supporting the podcast by purchasing some handmade greeting cards, visit the show notes, or just go straight to my website at www.paulrex.com. 
www.paulrex.com and remember Paul Rex is all one word. American and Chinese scientists are flabbergasted after discovering a giant 298 million year old forest buried intact under a coal mine near Wuda in Inner Mongolia, China. They are calling it the Pompeii of the Permian period because like the ancient Roman city, it was covered and preserved by volcanic ash. From the gizmodo.com website, The Lost Forest. An extraordinary 298 million year old forest discovered under a Chinese coal mine. And it's written by Jesus Diaz. Like Pompeii, this swamp forest is so perfectly maintained that scientists know where every plant originally was. This extraordinary finding is like Pompeii, according to University of Pennsylvania paleobotanist Herman Pfefferkorn, who characterised it as a time capsule. It's marvellously preserved. We can stand there and find a branch with the leaves attached. And then we find the next branch, and the next branch, and the next branch. And then we find the stump from the same tree. That's really exciting. They are in fact finding entire trees and plants exactly as they were at the time of the volcanic eruption. Just like archaeologists in Pompeii found humans, animals and buildings at the base of Mount Vesuvius near Naples in the Italian region of Campania. Except Pompeii was buried in AD 79 and this forest was covered in ash 298 million years ago during the Permian period. The researchers discovered the 10,763 square foot area hidden under a coal mine using heavy industrial machinery. They believe that this frozen in time fossilised forest was covered under gigantic amounts of ash that fell from the sky for days. So far they have identified six groups of trees, some of them 80 feet tall. Some of them are Sigillaria and Chordates but they have also found large groups of a type called Noegaathiales, I hope I said that correctly, which are now completely extinct. During the Permian, which extends from 299 to 251 million years ago, there weren't conifers or flowers. Plants reproduced like ferns using spores, and then the modern continents were still joined in a single mass of land called Pangaea. This geologic period happened at the end of the Paleozoic era, after the Carboniferous. During this time there were also animals. This was when the first group of mammals, turtles, lepidosaurs, archosaurs started to roam the earth. Scientists believe that the Permian, and with it the entire Paleozoic era, ended with the largest mass extinction ever which obliterated 90% of the marine and 70% of the terrestrial species. After this event, the Mesozoic era started with the Triassic period. That's when the first true mammals evolved. The pterosaurs flew for the first time and the archosaurs rose to dominate the Earth. 
Pfefferkorn worked on the project with Jun Wang of the Chinese Academy of Sciences, Yi Zhang of the Shenyang Normal University, and Zhuo Feng of the Yunnan University. The results of their findings have been published in the journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Since I first found this article, the Gizmodo.com people have made a new webpage that also has photographs from this interesting and exciting discovery. If you'd like to see those, they're at the show notes at www.origins.info. Click on the link to the Origins show notes when you get there, and then on the link to this article in episode 121. The photographs are quite clear and quite fascinating. And while you're there, you might like to click on the following link as well, which comes from the msn.bc.com website. What it shows is some solar tornadoes dancing across the sun in this stunning space video. It's really quite fascinating. The little caption says, Funnels of dark plasma, hundreds of thousands of miles long, were made visible by the Solar Dynamics Observatory satellite. It's really worth a look. Today I found out the pharmaceutical company Bayer coined the name heroin and marketed the drug as a non-addictive cough medicine, among other uses. From the www.todayifoundout.com website, the pharmaceutical company Bayer coined the name heroin and marketed the drug as a non-addictive cough medicine. While opium itself has commonly been used since at least 3400 BC, heroin is a relatively new invention derived from opium. Heroin, more technically known as diacetylmorphine, was first synthesised in 1874 by chemist Charles Romley Alder Wright, working at St Mary's Hospital Medical School in London, England. He discovered the drug after playing around with mixing morphine with various acids. Specifically, he created it after boiling acetic anhydride with anhydrous morphine alkaloid for a few hours, which resulted in what we now commonly call heroin. After running a few experiments with it on animals though, he abandoned his work on the drug. 23 years later, a man named Felix Hoffmann working at Bayer in Germany managed to independently synthesize heroin when he was trying to produce codeine. This new derivative of opium was found to be significantly more potent than morphine, and so Heinrich Dresser, head of the pharmacological laboratory at Bayer, decided that he should move forward with it, rather than another drug that they had recently created, called aspirin. It should be noted that Dresser was apparently well aware of Wright having synthesised heroin 23 years before. But despite this, he claimed heroin was an original Bayer product, and by early 1898, they began the animal testing phase of the product, testing it primarily on rabbits and frogs. They next moved on to testing it on people, primarily workers at Bayer, including Heinrich Dresser himself. After successful trials, 
heroin was presented to the Congress of German Naturalists and Physicians as more or less a miracle drug that was ten times more effective than codeine as a cough medicine and worked even better than morphine as a painkiller. He also stated it had almost no toxic effects, including being completely non-addictive. Dresser particularly pushed heroin as the drug of choice for treating asthma, bronchitis, tuberculosis and phthisis. If it seems odd to you that he should push heroin as a cough medicine over its painkilling effects, it should be noted that at the time tuberculosis and pneumonia were among the world's leading causes of death and one of the leading methods to treat this was using codeine, which is fairly addictive given regular use. Because heroin worked well as a sedative and respiration depressor, it did indeed work extremely well as a type of cough medicine and allowed people affected by debilitating coughs to finally be able to get some proper rest, free from coughing fits. Further, because it was marketed as non-addictive, unlike morphine or codeine, it was initially seen as a major medical breakthrough. Just one year after its release, heroin became a worldwide hit, despite it not actually being marketed directly to the public, but rather simply to physicians. Heroin was soon sold in a variety of forms, mixed in cough syrup, made into tablets, mixed in a glycerin solution as an elixir, and put into water-soluble heroin salts, among others. At the end of this first year, it was popularly sold in over 23 countries, with Bayer producing about one tonne of it in that year. Obviously, it quickly became apparent that Bayer's claims of the drug being non-addictive were completely false, with reports popping up stating within months of its widespread release. Despite this, it continued to sell well in the medical field. Finally, in 1913, after the number of heroin addicts began to skyrocket and it became likely that it would shortly be banned in many countries, Bayer decided to stop producing the drug. And if you visit the show notes and click on the link to this article in episode 121, there are a whole pile, and I mean a whole pile, of bonus factoids to go with this story. And to bring the podcast to a close, something I haven't done in quite a while. Some very short stories from the age.com.au website or the Age Oddspot. Short and slightly humorous stories from all around the world. A tribunal has ordered an Auckland car yard, and Auckland's in New Zealand if you didn't know, that claimed dents in a car were design features to repay the customer $10,250 and $238 damages. Panel beaters found the car had structural faults, was unsafe, and would have cost almost $4,000 to fix. 
Health officials will next year grant a one-day waiver on a ban on pets in restaurants, so the winning pooch of a New York dog show can be treated to the traditional top prize. A meal in Saadi's restaurant, instead of eating from a doggy bag. A 136kg man gave little thought to a disguise when he shoplifted from a Philadelphia Walmart in the nude. Police confronted him at the door and tasered him when he ignored their command to stop. He had shoplifted a pair of socks. San Diego police were red-faced after they surrounded a car for two hours on a highway with guns drawn only to discover it was empty. They had believed a robbery suspect was inside. Even though news helicopter video showed the car empty, police kept traffic at a standstill. An English soccer player has ditched plans to build a Teletubbies house modelled on the children's TV show. Former Manchester United player Gary Neville spent 18 fruitless months trying to get his multi-million pound underground house plans approved. John Hughes, 55, of Montana, led police on a car chase at speeds over 160 kilometres per hour on an interstate highway before running over a spike strip that shredded his tyres. Fined a thousand US dollars and facing a new tyre bill, he told police he had always wanted to do that. Indonesia will try to deter train surfers by swatting them with brooms drenched in putrid goop. Railway official Ahmad Sajadi says the contraptions will be installed at selected crossings to deter passengers from clambering onto overcrowded trains. It isn't a fish tale many would brag about. Anglers at an ice fishing tournament in Michigan were amazed when only one fish was caught, even though 400 people had entered. The sole catch of the day, a two kilogram perch, was good for the $3,000 first prize. The Pigs of God Festival attracted 100,000 people who came to worship the winning 1,061-kilogram pig in an annual contest at a temple in Taipei. Despite its popularity, the pig was slaughtered as a sacrifice to Qing Shu Master, a local deity. A social welfare office in Dublin has banned interviewees from wearing pyjamas. Officials at the Damastown office put up a notice warning that pyjamas are not regarded as appropriate attire, reports the BBC. It is believed the rule was made after several complaints. And finally, this short story proves that there are only two certainties in life, death and taxes. A Florida man keen to minimise his tax told revenue agents he was not subject to mortal man's laws but resided in the kingdom of heaven. Russell Gentile was charged with filing false tax returns, Florida Today reported.
Well, listeners, that concludes episode 121 of the Origins podcast. I hope you enjoy today's show. A big thank you to those who provided feedback through iTunes or other places or sent me emails saying how much they like the show. And a big, very big thank you, I should say, to those of you who made a donation to the podcast, whether it be through the donate link on the website or buying some greeting cards. And remember, if you would like to support the podcast and you do prefer handmade greeting cards, I have that link on the origins.info website now or just go to www.paulricks.com. Anyway, until next time, it's thank you everyone and bye for now. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.